This is Bad Ideas About Writing, the podcast that counters major myths about writing instruction, and the podcast where I wonder if repeating myself with this intro stuff every week is getting boring, but just bear with me. This is the audio version of the open access book, Bad Ideas About Writing, which is edited by Cheryl Ball and Drew Lowy. That book features 63 chapters of opinionated, research-based statements intended to spark debate and offer a better way of teaching writing. I'm Kyle Stedman from Rockford University, and I'm here to read those chapters out loud to you, giving you another way to access those ideas. Like I said, there'll be 63 episodes eventually, but this is episode 23, and here's today's bad idea about writing. Writers must develop a strong original voice. It's by Patrick Thomas. One of the most common pieces of advice to writers, old and new, is that they must spend time cultivating their voice. Far less common are pieces of advice for actually doing this work. Should writers spend months in search of an original topic, researching and developing brilliant new subjects to write about? Such work seems particularly difficult in an era of excessive information. Or should writers journey on their own, Elizabeth Gilbert style, eating, praying, and loving their way around the globe? This kind of journey, while glamorous, seems as extreme as it would be expensive. Part of the reason advice about developing one authorial voice is scant is because the concept of voice usually implies some intrinsic characteristic of the author herself. With such a fuzzy definition, instructive advice about developing one's voice instead gets conflated with two other aspects of good writing. Point of view, or the writer's perspective on a topic, and figurative language, the use of descriptive devices. Why, then, does the idea of the author's voice have such staying power in discussions of good writing? For one thing, voice is a concept that reflects the long-held belief that writing developed from spoken language and that over time, writing became a substitute for speech. However, recent research from fields of archaeology and art history suggests that this is not the case. Writing developed not from speech, but out of a need to represent numbers in the increasingly complex economic transactions in early cultures. See, for instance, Denis Schmont Besserat's work on the history of writing. Origins aside, writing and speech are two ways of using language, so many people think it is possible to ascribe similar characteristics to each and, in turn, to conceptualize writing in terms of speech. Further, since writing and speech are conceptualized in terms of rhetorical practices, that is, the use of language as a means of creating knowledge and effectively communicating that knowledge, applying verbal qualities of speech to writing provides a kind of shorthand for thinking and talking about writing. That shorthand also prevents us from thinking and talking about writing as its own form of communication. And the author's voice represents one important limitation of thinking about writing in terms of speech. No writing happens in a vacuum. Writing as a communicative activity is made for an audience of readers. In practice, how readers interpret writing has far less to do with passive decoding or reception of a message developed by someone else. Reading is itself a constructive act. Quite literally, reading is meaning-making. From the perspective of the reader, then, being a part of an audience has power. Much of that power lies in the ways readers infer an author's voice into a text. 
Suppose, for example, that you receive a love letter. You would likely interpret this letter differently depending on what you know about its author. If the love letter comes from your spouse, significant other, or paramour, you might cobble together memories of the author's familiar expressions, knowledge of the author's manners of language use, and even particular moments in the history of your relationship that imbue your reading of the letter with what you think the author's motives are. On the other hand, if your love letter is written by a secret admirer, you might find the whole notion of this letter awkward, flattering, intriguing, or intrusive. With this unknown author, you have less to go on to determine what the letter means, and with the knowledge you're lacking, the author's voice is distant, even inappropriate. Regardless of your letter's author, it is important to remember that all of the conjecture about the author that goes on happens in the mind of the reader. It has little to do with the author or her voice at all. Using the author's words, the reader weaves together an interpretation based on the reader's own previous experience with those words, with similar genres or situations, or her own priorities for the text. Where, then, is the author's voice? From the perspective of an author, an audience is always an approximation, or, as Walter Ong called it, a fiction. When an author writes, she anticipates when, how, and why an audience might use her text, but this is always a best guess, something in between what the author imagines and what actually happens when real people read her writing. In the same way, when a reader encounters a piece of writing, the author's voice is always a fabrication, a fiction in the mind of the reader. This is hardly a groundbreaking observation. After all, 50 years ago, Roland Barthes declared that the birth of the reader must be at the cost of the death of the author. Barthes' The Death of the Author holds particular importance for revising contemporary myths about the author's voice. Specifically, it brings into stronger relief the fact that any rendering of the author's voice rests solely in the ways a reader encounters a text and what the reader pays attention to while reading. In other words, any voice of a text is contingent upon the particular ways a reader might apply emphasis to certain ideas, prioritize certain linguistic devices, and make inferences about an author's motives, intents, or aims, all at the expense of other ideas, devices, or aims. Recognizing that an author's voice is a characteristic created by the reader, the concept and efforts to develop it occupy a less prominent role in the development of writing ability than writing teachers commonly give it credit for. On the other hand, letting go of the myth of the author's voice allows for a number of possibilities that help writers develop their work. First, letting go of this myth demystifies the practice of writing. Prioritizing voice stifles necessary kinds of invention practices needed to produce writing in the first place because the priority of authenticity or unique ability over content makes writers edit themselves before they've even started writing. Recognizing, too, that writing is audience-driven helps to make the work of writing more manageable. Second, Debunking the myth of the author's voice helps to remove the stale notion that writing is some kind of divine gift, talent, or genetic trait that some people have and others do not. Removing this obstacle to writing helps people see writing as not only important to their lives, but also an ability that is learnable, teachable, and can grow with practice. 
Third, laying bare the myth of the author's voice draws attention to aspects of good writing that reflect what readers want and need. Specifically, we come to recognize that aspects of writing we claim to value, like originality, authenticity, or sheer cleverness, are perhaps less important than more practical issues, like the ability to make and support a claim, the ability to select and ethically represent evidence and experience, or the ability to write in a way that readers might recognize as important. Fourth, removing the myth of the author's voice helps to provide a larger, more cumulative picture of how writing functions in the world. Scholars call this intertextuality, the ways writing emerges from, builds on, responds to, acts upon, and provides for other writing. Removing writing from the constraints of a single author's voice helps to trace how writing circulates and brings about the production of more writing, and to show how writing is employed in all facets of life. Finally, relieving ourselves of the myth of the author's voice empowers readers to consider the ways their own abilities to make meaning have an impact on the subjects they care about. It also provides a way to explain how multiple, even competing interpretations of a text can be developed through careful, critical reading practices. This is, in the end, what authors really want from readers, to engage in dialogue about the knowledge they make through the practices of writing and reading. What's lost by letting go of the myth of the author's voice? Not much, except perhaps a clumsy metaphor that gets in the way of more accurate descriptions of a reader's response. Conversely, letting go of the author's voice turns writers and writing teachers' attention toward more important aspects of learning to write. It allows writers to move beyond what Linda Flower calls writer-based prose, in which the primary concern is the author's own ideas and expression of those ideas, to reader-based prose, in which the audience's needs take priority. It refocuses the analysis of production of writing toward what authors can help readers to think about, understand, feel, and believe. In short, letting go of the author's voice makes room to envision the nature and function of writing more accurately, not as a series of individual disruptions, but as a continual integration of knowledge and a way of making sense of the world. Further reading. For more about the history of writing, see Denise Schmont-Besserat's website, For voice and authorship from the perspective of the original author, read Roland Barthes' germinal essay, The Death of the Author. Basic theories of audience are explained in Walter Ong's The Writer's Audience is Always a Fiction. For a pedagogical discussion, see Linda Flower's Revising Writer-Based Prose, Journal of Basic Writing. For practical advice, see Joseph Moxley's Consider Your Audience and Amanda Ray's What to Think About When Writing for a Particular Audience. The latter two sources are particularly good for students to read. Key words. Audience. Authenticity. Intertextuality. Origins of writing. Reading as meaning-making. Speech. Voice. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. 
Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You just heard the bad idea about writing. Writers must develop a strong original voice, which is by Patrick Thomas. And in 2017, Thomas published this bio. Patrick Thomas is an associate professor of English at the University of Dayton in Dayton, Ohio, where he teaches courses in composition theory, literacy studies, and professional writing. He is interested in how people write outside of school, new theories of what writing is, and digital culture. His Twitter handle is at Patrick W. Thomas. The podcast version of Bad Ideas About Writing is produced and narrated by me, and it's hosted at Anchor.fm. The theme music is Parade by Nocturnum. The open access book Bad Ideas About Writing was first published in 2017 by the West Virginia University Libraries and Digital Publishing Institute, and it's available online at their website for free. That's where you should go if you'd like to read a print version of this chapter. And I always say that, but of course you really should, right? Go read this stuff. Both the podcast and the book are published under really open Creative Commons licenses that allow you to distribute and remix them for free just give attribution. Thanks to Cheryl Ball and to Drew Lowy and to all the authors in this awesome collection. I'm Kyle Stedman. I'm on Twitter at KStedman and I live in Rockford, Illinois, where I got to tell you, I'm getting pretty good at my snowblower skills. Thanks for listening.